trigger warning. This podcast is about grief. Whether you are newly bereaved or whether you have been stuck in grief for years, I do hope this podcast brings you some comfort. Grief is such a universal experience, but we all do it differently. This podcast is not about fixing you or forcing the healing process because there is no cure for grief. It can only be absorbed, experienced, loved and cared for. So whether you are doing it privately behind closed doors or like me, you are kicking and screaming your way through, let's support each other. This is a safe space where we can come together and share experiences. My hope is that this podcast shines a light on your path and gives you the strength to navigate your way through the grieving process. My name is Louise Bates and I'm so pleased we connected. I'm looking forward to interviewing people who have also walked this path to find out what worked for them in the hope that it helps you too. I'm sending you so much love and support and I look forward to sharing this crazy journey with you. Hello and welcome to this episode of A Gift for Grief. And today I am delighted to be speaking with an award-winning life and death coach. So my guest today is Jane Duncan Rogers, who helps people prepare well for a good end of life. Jane has been in the field of psychotherapy and personal growth for many years. She is the founder of Before I Go Solutions and she is dedicated to educating people about dying, death and grief. She is also a published author and she has an amazing TED Talk which I highly recommend my listeners check out. So welcome Jane. Hi, thank you. Great to be here. Now, did I miss anything out? You're a very busy lady. Yes, I was just listening to that and thinking, gosh, yes, that's all true. And um, how I got into this is like, it's, well, I wasn't really aware of anything to do much with life or uh, death, I mean, until my husband died, which was in 2011. And it was as a result of everything that happened to me after that, that I wrote my first book, which was Gifted by Grief. So very appropriate for this particular podcast. Yes. And readers' response to that is what led me to start Before I Go Solutions, where we're helping people to actually get their end of life plans done instead of just thinking it's a good idea to do and then not doing anything about it, which is unfortunately what most people do. Yes. Yeah. So um, you also trained with Louise Hay, didn't you? I did. I did. Oh. This was way back in 1990. I was really lucky to be able to train with her and what turned out to be her last training course for people to become study group leaders of her famous book you can heal your life so I did do that training and then in 1992 I was running courses myself the first person in the UK and Europe to do so and um wow yeah I mean it was wonderful I did that yeah. for quite a <laughs> well I've read all her books and I've listened to many of her online talks and she has probably been my biggest teacher but I never got to meet her in person so 
very jealous. She was she was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. You're absolutely right. Yeah. You know what? She had a lovely blend of practicality and spirituality that really went together, and it really appealed to me because I think I have that sort of same blend. You know, I have a foot in both camps, sort of thing. Yes. And, uh, yeah. She was very inspiring. Wonderfully inspiring woman. Yeah. So perhaps we could start then, Jane. Could you sort of take us back to that time when, you know, you were married and then your husband was diagnosed with stomach cancer? If you can take us back to that time and tell us how it panned out and how you got into what you're doing now with your work. Yeah, it was. um, I mean, he was diagnosed out of the blue. We had no reason to suspect that he would have anything as serious as that. And um but initially there was given treatment and a successful operation to get the cancer out. He he had a good prognosis, but unfortunately, um, after the first lot of chemo, he had the operation, but it didn't work. The operation didn't get everything out. So we knew we had probably, well, we had a matter of months when we knew that it was only going to be a matter of months. Um, and in that time, I received an email from a, a good friend um, of both of ours with a whole long list of questions in it, things like what are your things that I needed to ask Philip before he actually died. So things like what are your passwords? What kind of coffin do you want? How do you want your body dressed? I mean, really practical things. Now, she had to send that email three times before I actually sat down with Philip and answered the questions because I didn't want to do it. I really did not want to do it. It was a bit too much in your face. But here's the thing, you know, it was quite amazing. We had a good time doing it. We were sitting up in bed one Saturday morning. He was still relatively okay. Um, I had the laptop. I created a document. I asked him the questions. We discussed them and I put down his answers. And then, you know, and then that was it. We didn't refer to it anymore. We didn't need to. And um, goodness, I was so glad afterwards that we had done that. And the very first benefit I had from it really was when the we had the the uh, funeral director come to the house after Philip had died, and um, one of the questions he asked me was, uh, "How do you want him dressed?" And I knew the answer. Oh my god, it was so nice to know the answer because we talked about it, and Philip had told me he wanted to be dressed in his dressing gown. Now I would never have thought about his dressing gown, but as soon as he said it to me, I knew because his dressing gown was one that I had made for him and I knew he really loved it. So it was really nice to be able to say to the funeral director that that's what it would be. It gave me a tiny, tiny bit of comfort knowing that Philip had known that I would say this at this time, you know, and it it did make a huge difference because it was another decision that I didn't have to make, you know. Perhaps many of your listeners will have experienced this. They will know what I'm talking about. But my God, does it really knock you sideways? I mean, and that's a mild, that's mildly, putting it mildly. I, I had trained as a counsellor. I knew I had trained and I had worked with bereaved people. I knew quite a lot about it from a professional point of view. But I was all over the place um, when he died. I just, the intensity of the feelings was like something I never experienced before and all sorts of feelings as well. I mean, really, well, you'll know what I'm talking about as well, obviously, but you you just don't know until it happens, do you? No, you don't. It's, it's really difficult to sort of explain to somebody what grief is and it's different for everybody, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Grief is unique to each person, but yeah, you 
you can't really put it into words, the rawness. And even though you know your loved one is dying, Philip had a diagnosis, you knew it was coming. It's still a shock when it happens, isn't it? You're never prepared. No, I know. I I was like, I think I was still in a state of shock for at least six months, if not a year afterwards. There would still be times when I would go, hang on a minute, how how could this have happened? You know, there was a part of me still not fully able to believe it and I know it's not like that for everybody but that's how it was for me um and and we had known we had known it was going to happen so yeah so it helps you knowing the answers to many questions after he died you knew what he wanted is this what helps you to found before I go solutions yeah well how how it happened was that um because I'd already been a writer, I was I was already working as a coach before he died, and I had a blog, I had people following me, and so I was I mean I was writing about all that was happening to us, obviously, and um, so I knew that at some point I would need to write about this big thing that had happened, and that did happen about two and a half years later, and I published Gifted by Grief, my first book, and. In it, I wrote about this chapter, about these questions, and this was the chapter that people responded to. I mean, I thought there were loads of other interesting, and there were loads of other interesting (laughs) spiritual enlightenment type stuff in there, and lots of useful nuggets. But this was the chapter that most people really liked, and they said things to me like, I really need to answer those questions too. So eventually it dawns on me, oh, all right then, well, I'll put a workshop on. And, you know, this was part of my history. I'd always run workshops and everything and trainings and all sorts of things. So I I knew what to do. I put a workshop on up here where I am in the north of Scotland, which is not very many people up here, generally speaking. Um, And it was booked out with 12 places, completely booked, and another 12 on the waiting list. And it was like, oh, all right then. So I really felt like I was just sort of following what life was asking of me, if you like. And um, later that year, uh, I was sitting in a cafe thinking, right, am I going to make this into a proper company or what? <laughs> and the word, the, the, the words before I go solutions came to mind as a title, as a name of the company. And that's really how it got birthed. I then decided to make it a social enterprise, which is like a not-for-profit organization. And And that was just later on in 2016. And here we are nearly eight years or something like that, seven or eight years later. So it's like, wow. okay, yeah. (laughs) It just goes to show there's a real need for this type of service. And until a few months ago, I had no idea that this sort of thing was even a thing or available. And I started my podcast in August and I've had a couple of guests that do a similar service. After recording their episodes, it really made me think about getting my own affairs in order because none of us know how long we've got and we don't have to wait for a diagnosis or a prognosis before we think about these things. But here I am, weeks later, and I've still done nothing about it. Why do you think we avoid going there? (laughs) 
I'm so glad that you're willing to admit that because honestly, you are so like everybody else. <laughs> Nearly, I think the stats, yeah, these are statistics from Marie Curie organization. They say that 90% of people say that this kind of thing, this kind of end of life planning, planning ahead is essential, but actually only 14, 1-4% do anything about it. So there's a huge gap between knowing it's a good idea and actually acting on that idea. And the reasons, gosh, well, the reasons are many and varied, but they do boil down usually to um, either being either there being no time. But I can tell you right now, there will never, ever be the right time for this sort of stuff because it's never going to get to the top of the, the list of your priorities. It just isn't. There's always something else that's going to be up there first. Um, but secondly, is um, another one is superstition. People think that if they think about this, even think about it, it will make death come sooner, which, by the way, is not true. But anyway, it, it is one of the things. And but also that mostly there's different forms of fear about it, like afraid that if you mention it to somebody, because it's quite hard to, to plan for your own end of life without talking to other people in your family or, or your friends. If, if you mention it, you don't know how they're going to take it. You don't want to offend people. You don't want to um, cause pain to somebody. Maybe you're uh, there. It's so overwhelming the thought of it. It's just like too much to do. So therefore, you don't get do anything at all. It's really common. It does require a decision. It like it's a bit like going on a diet. You know, they don't work unless you make a decision to do it properly. <laughs> so you have to make a decision that you're going to do this, and then. Of course, I'm biased, but I recommend getting some help to do it because it's a lot easier with somebody else um, helping you out to, to help you to think things through, to point you in the right direction, to give you the, the resources that might be necessary to help you make the decision that is right for you. Yeah, I think working with somebody like you, you will have you will know the right questions to ask mm -hmm. because sitting here, I think, well, where do I start? It's, yes. it's so difficult, isn't it? But if you want to support someone else with their end of life plan, maybe a loved one, how do we start that conversation? How do you start the conversation? It's a really difficult one, isn't it? Yeah. I always talk about the three C's of having a good de death conversation. And the first one is that you need to have courage. There's got to be one person with a bit of courage. Now, I, I did write a second book before I go, The Essential Guide to Creating a Good End of Life Plan. And there's a whole chapter about that, about having a conversation in this. So if anyone's interested, they can explore that a bit more. But um, the first C is courage. Yeah, it, it is a courageous conversation still to have. So somebody has to have the courage. The second thing that you need, though, is the second C is context. You need to have a context. You can't just sort of arrive at the dinner table and say, so... How do you want your body to be dressed then when you're in a coffin? You know, it just doesn't work. I mean, I'm sort of being facetious here, but you get the point. But what you can say is I was listening to this really interesting podcast the other day about blah, blah, blah. And it made me think about whatever it made you think about. And then and then you might share something with your friend or your family member or whatever about what it was that you were thinking. So then it's natural to ask them what they would think about that. And there you get a little piece of information that might be really useful. And then the third C is what I call a death chat. That's the, the C is the chat bit. Because we think we, and by that I mean humanity really, generally speaking, certainly in the Western world, tend to think that a conversation like this has to be really sort of macabre and gloomy and dark and to be avoided at all costs. 
But as I discovered with Philip, when we were answering those questions, it doesn't have to be like that at all. It can actually be quite light, quite creative. It can even be humorous. Because remember, when you're having a conversation about this, for the most part, it's a theoretical conversation. Unless you're speaking to somebody who's very close to the end, it's still in theory that, you know, of course, we all know that we are going to die one day, even if we don't want to face up to that idea. But while we're alive, we're alive talking about it in theory. And that makes it easier. Yeah. But there's one other tip, actually, which just comes to mind that I want to say, which makes it a lot easier to think about this sort of stuff, because usually we're thinking about when we die in the future which of course it is going to be in the future. But when you come to think about this sort of stuff, it's easier to think about if in your mind's eye, you have the question, if I had died yesterday, what would be happening around me? Well, apart from the fact that everybody's going to be terribly sad and everything, how from a a practical administrative point of view, what would be happening? So you only have to look around your room to see, oh, Right. Okay. Well, all this stuff would be here and who would be taking care of it if I already wasn't here? And that gives you a way to think about Mm. it that makes it a lot easier. Yeah. We plan really well to bring life into the world, don't we? Yeah. And we just need to normalise planning well for exiting this life as well. We do. It's Mm. just not Uh, It's just not how it is at the moment. But could you share an example of how you've helped someone with their end of life plan? Yeah. So what we do now is we focus on training people to help others do it. But when I started off, it wasn't like that. So, for example, I was working with a group, a small group of people here locally, weekly. I think it was probably six or seven weeks. And there was one woman in there who was doing it for herself, but she was also doing it on behalf of her parents. But her parents didn't know anything about this. (laughs) So each week we were looking, everybody brought their workbook and we filled in some bits of it all together. And that was really helpful. And But she had a a particular challenge, which was, how am I going to talk to my parents about this? How can I tell them I've got one? I don't even know if they've got a will. And her parents were in her 80s. So this became a family affair, if you like. And in the group, we were able to help her pluck up the courage to help her suggest what she might say to them. And even though she was literally in tears with fear at the thought of doing this, which is understandable, you know, it's never been mentioned. She she went away and determined that she would come back the next week having done something about this. And she did. She came back the next week. She had a big smile on her face. And what what had happened was she had told them that she was going on this course and that she had some homework. And the homework was to ask them if they had a will. <laughs> Excellent plan. So although the course, yeah, exactly. So although the, she was doing the course for herself, which she was, A large part of it was finding out what was going on for her parents. Now, here's what happened with the parents. They both breathed a sigh of relief because they had been wondering how on earth to broach the subject with their daughter. (laughs) Now, this is not unusual. People think about this thing, but are scared to bring it up. So it's like that's when it becomes like the elephant in the room, which I talk about in my TEDx talk. Alongside the practicality of answering the questions and filling them in in the workbook and all that, here was this other piece that kind of actually helped the whole family. And that's why it's such rewarding work as well. Yes. Yeah. It sounds amazing. Now, if I want to get one of your books to help me sort out my affairs and start planning, which one would I go for? Well, it depends what you what really um, suits you best. 
at our website, which is beforeigosolutions.com, you can get access to my book that I mentioned before, Before I Go, which is simply a book, but I've written it. You can get it on Amazon. I've written it in such a way that if you're the kind of person who will put into practice the exercises in a book, then that's all you need. You don't need anything else. However, caveat here, if you know that you're not that kind of person, <laughs> or if you think you would like to be that kind of person, but you also secretly know that you're not, then that's not the best thing that I suggest. Um, you can go to the website and in the shop, you'll see that there are different combinations of various things to help you. So you can get um, a workbook to go along with the, the, the book, which that might help because it's easier putting everything down in one place. Or we have an online course, the Before I Go Method, which you can do if you like online courses. That can be done um, just by yourself. Although I'm not sure that I totally recommend that because usually people need a bit more help, in which case we have a whole lot of facilitators now around the country and abroad who can be reached out to via the website to get help, um, either one-to-one or in a group, to actually get the things done because that's the main thing it's one thing having the conversation the three c's and doing the conversations but it's another step to get the results of those conversations written down and the reason that that's important is because people remember things in different ways and when you put grief into the mixture as well which really discombobulates everything it can be uh, still be a breeding ground for um distress and arguments and disagreements which you know sometimes last years and it's so unnecessary if we could only you know take care of this beforehand yeah communication is the key isn't it absolutely so how can people find you jane what's your website and i will put it in the show notes that's fine yeah if you go to before i go solutions.com You'll find everything there, all the courses. There's some free stuff that you can sign up for that will get you started. And um, there's ways to get in touch with people who can help you. You can get in touch with me there as well. And and we have various different products uh, for sale on the website as well. That's fabulous. Thank you. Now, you have had your experience of grief with Philip, and which you talk about in your TED Talk. What helped you to navigate your grief journey in those early days? Yeah, it was, um, I was thinking about this because one of the things that I've always done since I was uh, in my early teens was to journal, to use a journal to write things down. So journaling was really important, although it wasn't, I must say, during that time, it was not nice, neat journaling. It was, you know, great, big, messy, very angry, shouty type writing. I mean, I wouldn't even call it writing. (laughs) So that was helpful. And actually expressing things in colour and I wouldn't call it art, but maybe making marks. That's not something that I did when after Philip died. But I did. I had done it earlier on in my life when I discovered that we were not going to be having children. That's a whole other story. But I was not going to be having children. And there was a grieving process to go through. And I used a lot of artwork at that point. Making marks with colour, I would call it. That was pretty angry too, actually, now I recall. But anyway, so the journaling was important. But also, I gave myself permission to feel whatever I was feeling. I remembered a thing that Louise Hay said. She said, very famously, "You, um, what you feel, you can heal. Yeah. What you feel, you can heal. You'll recognise that. Yeah. And it was the one thing that I held on to in this kind of sea of stormy emotions and I just knew that I mustn't um, try and 
um, censor any of it. Now, that did lead to some interesting situations where, for example, I would go to a meeting and then have to leave five minutes later, or I would do a, arrange to do something with someone and then realise that I couldn't at the last minute, you know. But I really knew that I had to honour myself in this. So allowing the feelings to be felt. So that a bit later on, I discovered a way of thinking about this that really worked. I thought I called it front door, back door thinking. So because emotions come when you're grieving, emotions come to the, outs let's say, to the outside of your house, like your body is your house. And they come knocking on the door. And when you don't want to see them, what you tend to do is um, pull down the blinds, shut the curtains, lock the door, don't let them in, you know, because you don't want them, understandably. Yeah. However, the trouble with that is that they get in anyway. They seep in under the ground or through the vents yeah. or whatever it is. So I discovered that it was better, actually, when no matter what kind of emotion it was, whether I liked it or didn't like it, I should open the door, open the windows, but open the back door of the house as well so that the motion, the feeling can come in, can give me its message, whatever it is. Sometimes it was just feeling horrible, but then it can leave again because there's one thing about feelings is they always change. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, the ones that we like, they change too. Yes, <laughs> they don't yeah. stay. Nothing stays. But I did find that way, that image of thinking about it with the front door of the house open and the back door of the house open as well so that things can easily pass through. That was helpful as well. I like that. And you talk about that in your TED talk as well, don't you? Yeah, um, I have forgotten yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought it was amazing. But yes, feeling is healing. That's yeah. really powerful. Now, can you remember what other people were like around you during this time? With, oh, God, yeah. Yeah? What did people feel uncomfortable, not know what to say, not know what to do? Quite a lot of people. Mostly my good friends were fine and mostly they didn't say very much at all. They were just there, you know, yeah. and they could be there whenever I was crying or whatever. Um, but there were a significant number of people who clearly felt awkward and um, didn't know what to say. I remember somebody said to me, they stopped me in the street and they said, um, please accept my condolences for your loss, which was absolutely fine that they wanted to acknowledge it. And I appreciated that, but it was so formal. Yeah. Just, uh, and in any way, I didn't feel like I had lost him. It wasn't a loss. You know, I, it's so difficult for people to get right because I wanted people to talk about it as a death. And yet the very first person who said to me, I'm sorry to hear about your husband's death. I was so shocked to hear somebody else say that word. Yeah. That I like almost visibly recoil, you know, so it's really hard because you, in a way you can't get it right. You know, if you're trying to say something, but my God, it's better to say something than nothing. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's so hard to get it right. Talking to different guests over the last few weeks, you know, one guest will say, I'm sorry for your loss. Somebody else will say, oh, I hate that. But I always think just look for the good intention behind the condolences because it is so hard to get it right. But saying something is better than ignoring someone's grief, isn't it? Just say something, even if it lands wrong. Yeah. It is a difficult one. But what words do you like to choose to express your condolences to someone? I now usually say, 
if if it, if it feels sad to me, which it probably will do, then I'll say I'm so sad to hear about and then the person's name. It depends yeah. on the circumstances, obviously, but that is general enough to not cause offence inadvertently, but also tells the truth of how I feel, which is that I'm so sad to hear about it. I try not to say what often comes to mind, which is how are you doing, you know, which is a bit of a naff mm-hmm. question, really. and it comes from the desire to be there for that person um and the other thing that even for me as well comes to mind usually is to say is there anything I can do but I know from being on the receiving end that it's better to offer a specific thing so for example one person I always remember this because it was such a specific thing that they offered they contacted me and they said um I will I go to the post office every day around about five o'clock. If you ever have anything that needs to be taken to the post office, just let me know and I'll come by and pick it up. It was like really specific. It was helpful because, you know, you don't always want to go out and be amongst people when you're grieving. No, no. And, um, and people don't know, you know, in in the old days when you used to have a black armband, the Victorian days, you know, I, I used to wish that we still had that because it would let people know, that you were grieving some kind of loss of some kind and they might be extra sensitive but yeah you know I mean it doesn't work when the cashier at the supermarket asks you how you are and you tell them the truth actually I'm not okay because my husband just died that's not okay to do that (laughs) (laughs) because that's not I mean that imagine being on the receiving end of that oh dear where do you go with that but it is it's a very difficult question isn't it but we're just so used to saying to people oh hi how are you doing Mm -hmm. it's almost like just a politeness of acknowledging they're there you don't really want to know how they're doing (laughs) that's right yeah and you so when you do start to open up so well actually I'm a bit rubbish at the moment my son died and it's it's, you just oh yeah I'm fine thank you how are you and but inside it is so hard isn't it no wonder people avoid engaging in the subject because it is so hard to get it right but can you recommend any books apart from your own books of course any books or films or groups support groups or podcasts that can help people well um the uh one of the books that I discovered too late actually for my own grieving was uh, but I, when I read it I thought oh god this would have been really helpful it was the grief recovery method handbook grief recovery, yeah. I think they call it that the grief recovery method handbook or grief recovery handbook it might be called but anyway yes that was I found that really good it's not right for everybody but it's definitely worth having a look at Um, The other one was the group that I wanted to belong to was called Widowed and Young. Now, I was 54 years old when Philip died, and they only have people up to 50. So I felt a bit miffed about that because I couldn't join them. They directed me to the similar group. I can't remember what it's called, but for people who are older. But the trouble was with that group, they were all a lot older, like sort of at least in their 70s and so I felt I in the middle you know I fell into the middle but I would for if you're younger I would definitely recommend that good that group and if you're older the other one I don't know if anybody has set up a, a, a group for in between people yet yeah. I suppose that's something I could have done but um 
but anyway I haven't done it so <laughs> it's so interesting isn't it but there are lots of groups out there now and with the internet we, we can find our tribe somewhere can't yeah. we yeah yeah we can we can yeah so Jane for people who have just lost a loved one or for other people who are maybe stuck in grief what words of wisdom could you share to maybe help them loosen their grief in some way yeah I think that what's most important is to accept where you're at yeah and that's really difficult you know because the thing that has happened is the thing that the last thing that you wanted to have happened and the only thing that's going to make it better is if they come back so I can remember thinking the only thing I want the only thing I'm interested in is for Philip to come back but there was a problem with that because I only wanted him back healthy because you know he was not having a great life when he was ill and he wasn't going to get better so I couldn't have that so I just went in and out in and out all the time of accepting where the, the fact that it had happened but the more I was able to uh, to do that to just face that fact if you like the easier it was and it wasn't about um forgetting him or anything like that but you know, I have since married again. I I, I met another man about a, a few years ago now. He also lost his wife. So you can imagine what our first date was like. We talked about death all the time. <laughs> but actually, we talked about death. We talked about our dead spouses. It yeah. was wonderful. And we've always said we've kind of got a marriage now with and and our his previous wife and Philip. They're both in that marriage. And it feels really good. When I met Ian, he was he had processed things in a completely different way. Only a few months after his wife had died, and he'd been with her for 43 years, it was a long marriage. He, being a kind of geeky tech kind of guy, had been, was like thinking about it in terms of, thinking about his life in terms of a video game, you know, where you get bonus lives. Once you've died, you then get a bonus life in a video game. And he was like, okay, right, game over bonus life that's what he was thinking now in that process he'd somehow managed to accept that his wife and his way of life and everything had gone he was able to accept it much quicker than I was I don't know why but he was but I saw a gift in that that if you're able to just admit really that it has happened and be with the feelings that that then brings that's helpful yes yeah where would you say you are now in your grief journey? Um, well, I'm not grieving, definitely not grieving anymore. There will always be a special place in my heart for Philip. And I still call Ian my new husband. I still sometimes call him Philip. Really? Oh. <laughs> yes. Fortunately, we can laugh about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's nearly always when I'm thinking about something from the past, you know. But yeah, I think... I think because I was willing to open, let let my heart be open and to keep it open, even when I was feeling really horribly painful feelings, that has helped me to come through, I would say, it's, it's kind of like not through to the other side, but it's helped me through because I've become a completely different person. I didn't want to become a completely different person as you'll probably recognise, and I'm sure some of your listeners will, I really didn't want to become, I quite liked the person that I was, I thought, 
But here is life happens to you and it makes you into a different kind of person. Um, um, but, you know, within two or three years, I'd already realized that Philip's life and death had been a gift to me, actually. I couldn't have had one without the other, obviously. And so I had to be almost grateful for both in a funny sort of way. Yeah. Yeah, I totally get that. My next question is, do you believe that grief has given you any gifts? Yeah, yeah. Well, I wrote a whole book about it, so yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to get your books. <laughs> well, you know, Gifted by Grief is a memoir. It's a really personal account of that sort of year in our lives and what happened for me afterwards. So it's definitely, if somebody had given me that book, where in the in the first few months of grieving, I would have just been so angry, I would have thrown it out the window, you know, because of that title. It's quite in your face, but but it is true that I received lots of different gifts from from Philip's death, and I did end up in that book saying that I was grateful for both his life and his death. And at that point, I really meant it, and I still really mean it. You know, you can't have one without the other. No. We 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 conveniently try to ignore that in our society. We just focus on life, but actually you can't have life without death. And we see it every day. We go out for a walk in the countryside. There's dead leaves and there's leaves that are growing or yeah. there's buds that are dormant. You know, we see evidence of it everywhere, but we yeah. ignore the fact that it happens to us as well. Absolutely. Now, do you have any special ways to remember Philip or any loved ones or any family rituals? Yeah. I um he was uh, cremated and um he wanted his ashes spread on a particular place down in Dumfries and Galloway in the southwest of Scotland where we used to go a lot so when I saw how much ashes there were which was a lot much more than I realized there would be I only put half of them there and then I spread I sent some ashes I didn't know you weren't supposed to do this. I put them in jiffy bags and I sent them through the post to various <laughs> different people in different countries um, to, spend, to spread around the world because he'd been a great traveller. But what I did for myself was I took just a tiny bit of them and I put them underneath a tree. Now, this is a tree near to me, about 10 minutes walk away. And it was a particular tree, um, which actually uh, there's a story about this. This is about a sign because this is one of the signs that he gave me. You asked me about signs, you know, did I get any signs from him? And I did one day. Well, there were quite a few of them, but this is one story. I was walking in the woods and I was really angry. I was just so furious that he'd abandoned me. This is what it felt like. And I shouted out, um, if you can hear me, give me a sign. And then I carried on crying and walking and stomping and not having a very nice time. And on the way back, I was a bit calmer by this time, I passed by a copse uh, uh, through an open field and past a copse that I've gone past hundreds of times, hundreds. And I really felt strongly pulled into the middle of it. And I've never done that before, never been into the middle of the copse. Anyway, I went and I got into the middle and I looked up and I saw this dead tree trunk with woodpecker holes in. Now, in that moment, I knew that this was the sign because... Philip and I had been on a wonderful trip to California and in a camper van. And we had stayed overnight in a someplace somewhere in the middle of pine field, uh, pine woods and surrounded by woodpecker holes. 
Now, nobody else could have known. Nobody um, else could have known that significance. So in that moment, I just felt so grateful. And that became the tree. Just at the bottom of that tree is where I made a little cross, even though we're not religious in any way with any associated religion. I made a cross out of some dry grasses. And that's where I put the little pile of ashes, which, of course, disappear quite quickly. But that's where I go still now if I want to just have a chat with him about particular things, you know, or just remember him, really. Yeah. And it's lovely. It's just lovely. Oh, I think that's beautiful, Jane. And it's it's so lovely that it's not far from you. You can you can go there any time and it's, it gives you a lot of comfort. That's wonderful. So what would you like people to learn from your experience? I know it feels impossible to carry on living while you're in the midst of such overwhelming grief and that you can't imagine that life will ever be any good again. I have been there. I have definitely thought that and have felt that. But I'm proof that it is possible. You know, you can even fall in love again. And that's not something that I thought even would be possible, in the, especially in the first 18 months or something. I didn't even want to consider it. But it is possible. And that grief and that death or those losses, whatever it is, they contribute to making you, let's say, a broader person and hopefully a more loving and more compassionate and kinder person. Yeah. And if that's not a gift, I don't know what is really. <laughs> yeah, I think there's going to be people listening to you are going to find a lot of hope in your words. I hope so. Yeah, it's so inspiring. Now, in your TED Talk, you share your experience of being with Philip when he died. And something you said really resonated with me. You described his body as an empty bag. And I totally got that. Because when my son Matthew died, it was like I was looking at an empty spacesuit. His essence or consciousness or soul energy, whatever you want to call it, his life force that filled his body was gone. Now, I believe, let's call it his soul, left his body and graduated to the next level. And I believe he lives on as energy at some level in an afterlife. What are your thoughts about the afterlife? Yeah, well, I would agree with you there because I also, as I, as you said, I had that experience. It was quite, I'd never seen anybody actually die, actually leave their body before, but my God, it was, it was in this particular instance, it happened immediately, immediately. And it was quite um, strong. And the difference was quite strong because I can remember not being interested in his body anymore because it, it was like irrelevant, you know, this empty bag. The bit that I liked was the bit that was in the bag, if you see what yeah. I mean. <laughs> But anyway, um, yeah, uh, well, my belief is that we are all energy. We are temporarily inhabiting this particular bag, the one that is called Jane Duncan Rogers that is speaking to you right now. <laughs> um, and it comes in this form for a certain amount of time and then it will go again and go back into the bigger energy field. I'm sure there's some science to back this up, but uh, anyway, I don't talk about it from a scientific point of view, no. more a spiritual point of view. Whether that's true or not, I don't really care because when I die, if there's nothing when I die, then I won't know about it, so it'll be all right. And um, 
if there's something, my belief here in this life is that it will be even more wonderful than where we are now. And, you know, if you're not having a wonderful life, then that's a consolation. And if you are having a wonderful life, it's still a consolation because it's going to be even better. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I think we're on the same page when it comes to the afterlife. (laughs) We'll carry that conversation when we meet each other on the other side and say, yeah, we were right. (laughs) That's a good idea. (laughs) So you've had this lovely sign with the woodpecker tree. Have you had lots of other signs as well, Jane? Well, there was one that comes to mind is uh, I was, again, I was walking in the woods. So this must be quite important, I think, because one of the things that happened after Philip died was that his 16-year-old granddaughter also died just three months later of cancer. 16 years old. I mean, what a tragedy. So in my mind, I wanted to think that he was looking after her. And um, that particular day, I was walking over a bridge over the river, little stream in in the woods. and. I thought I was thinking of Becky who had died and wondering if he had he if he was able to look after her and I kind of heard a voice which I can't remember the exact words now but the comforting feeling to the voice was yes yes she's in good hands and then I saw a single white feather now those feathers I love those feathers I know whatever <laughs> I don't care whether your belief about a white feather means that there's somebody from the afterlife is communicating with you or not. I don't care whether that's a true belief or not. It doesn't matter. If it's something that you believe and it brings you comfort, then that's what matters. So for me, that was an affirmation, if you like, that actually Philip and Becky were together out of their bodies and okay. Yeah. And that felt really good. So I'm choosing, if you like, to believe that. Yeah. Whether or not I heard that voice or not, who knows? I, I don't care really so much about whether this is true or not or right or wrong or whatever. I think what's important for anybody is what it is that brings them comfort. And that's the important yeah, thing. Absolutely. And I think if you tend to be a bit more open minded to these things, you're more likely to notice them. If you're completely close to it, they could be happening, but you're just, it's not on your radar. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, Jane, if you could give Philip a message today, what would you say? It would be a great big thank you. It would be a great big hug if I could hug him, but it would be a great big thank you for both his life and his death. And, you know, he had a thing where... In this life, you know, he was a great spiritual seeker and he wanted what he was disappointed about towards the end of his life was that he hadn't managed to get enlightened. I mean, (laughs) quite a tall order that. But anyway, that's what um, was happening for him. But I feel like he's his death has given me so much openings in that sense to another to other lives, to who we, to a bigger sense of who we really are. And that's the other things that I talk about in Gifted by Grief, really. That that's why I can only be grateful for both his life and his death. And that's what I'd be saying to him now. And I'm pretty sure he's 
got a big smile on his face up there in heaven if if you believe in heaven <laughs> wherever he is <laughs> he certainly was a big gift for you and i think we'll end the podcast there on such a beautiful note so thank you very much jen i'm off to buy your books now <laughs> thank you very much that's wonderful <laughs> thank you okay, it's a pleasure <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of A Gift for Grief. Please feel free to share it with your friends and family and let's encourage others to become more grief literate. If you're struggling with your grief or worried about your mental health, please do speak to your doctor. If you would like to join me on my social media groups, check out the show notes for all the links and I look forward to connecting with you next time. The music on this podcast was written and recorded by Matthew Bates and can be found on his two albums, Fight Back and Kaleidoscope.